question for us all is, how great is the love of God? How great, how much do we really recognize that God's love for humanity, for mankind? There in John 3.16 it says, God, the Father, so loved the world that he's ready to dump it. No, he said he so loved the world that he allowed Emmanuel to come to this earth to make a way for people to be a part of his family. To me, that is tremendously amazing that our God allowed Christ, allowed the Word. As we know in John chapter 1, verse first 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And God allowed that Word who was there in the beginning to give up everything for mankind. And he said he didn't send him to this world to condemn it, did he? He said, no that the world might be saved through him. It's interesting, as I listened to Terry, and I thought, there in Daniel chapter 9, you know, talks about we all have different ideas and different thoughts and different things, and there in Daniel 9, it says, we are in confusion of faith. The church hasn't got on track yet. We have people that say they're the witnesses. So now we have what, 27, 28, 31, two witnesses. I don't know how many there are, but there's sure a lot of people that say they're the two witnesses, or they're training the two witnesses. We are confused, aren't we? Because we do not yet come to the point to know how great that love of God is. He has a lot of love for every human being that he created. In Amos chapter 3, it says, verse 3, can two walk together unless they agree? Do we agree with our Creator? Do we agree that Daniel says we are confused? I think we are. And yet, our God still loves us. You know, back in Exodus 12, and I'll go there first, it's interesting that Exodus 12, verse 3, Exodus 12, verse 3, Emmanuel, the Word, speaking to Moses, said, Speak to the congregation of the children of Israel and say, On the tenth day of the first month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their father, a lamb for a house. This is on the tenth day of the first month. I want to go on from yes, where we were last night. That's why I'm starting here. It says on the tenth day of the first month, God told the children of Israel to select a lamb which would be used for sacrifice. Then go to John now. 
show you something. John chapter 12, verse 29. John chapter 12, verse 29. I think this is where I want to be. And the people of their foot stood by and heard it. Now here's a time when, let's back up a little bit here, I think. Uh, verse 26, and if a man serve me, let him follow me, verse 26. And where I am, there shall my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul is, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into the world. Father, glorify your name. Then there came, uh, then the, a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. At this point, this was the tenth day of the first month, and God was pointing out who would be the Lamb without blemish. God himself said that. It goes on, the people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it was thunder. Others said an angel spoke, but Jesus said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sake. God wanted to point out that he was selecting the lamb. Something I learned when I was going through this whole study was Christ, Emmanuel, was in charge all the way through. He was in charge of what was happening. Maybe we don't think that. But if you look you'll find that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests all wanted to get rid of Christ. He was a threat to them. And so they said, but we can't do it on the holy days because there'd be too many people and the people would get riled up. But we know Christ said two days before the feast, my hour or my time is. Remember, he sent the apostles in to find a place. He decided it was time. He said it was time. Not them, not the world, not people. Christ said it was the time. And we see that all the way through, everything that happened, Christ was still in charge. Remember, we read that they were at the supper, at the end of supper, at the end of the foot washing. What did Christ say? told Judas, it is time, it's time to do it now. Go and do what you are told to do. Christ was in charge. And never through the whole instance that happened on this day, not tomorrow, but this day, as we look back in history, and as we think about what happened on this very day, our Savior. He was in charge. He knew what was going to happen. Let's go to Mark now. I'm going to use the harmony of the gospel here. Mark 
chapter 14. Let's find it here. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Last night, we sang a hymn and we went home. But it goes on from there. Verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Golgotha, or Gethsemane rather. And he said unto the disciples, Sit you here while I pray. We read that. But here Christ has left. Judas has now gone out on the uh, two days before the feast. Judas went and made a deal with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the priests to sell Christ as the Passover lamb. But they didn't look at it that way. He went to sell him. He made a contract to deliver our Savior to these people that would murder him just a few days down the line. So he's already gone. They sang their hymn. They've gone over to the garden now. And Christ went there to pray. And he takes with him Peter, verse 33, James and John, and began to be greatly amazed and sore troubled. Can you imagine? You know what's going to happen just a few hours, six hours maybe. You know what's going to happen. So he was sorrowful. And he prayed. And remember his prayers were like, his, like the sweat was like drops of blood. So he was very sorrowful. Even unto death. Abide here and watch. So here he told them to wait. Stay awake. Some of us maybe. We stayed awake most of the night. Some of us up to midnight. Whatever. Because we've learned in times past that this is a time that we need to really grasp what our Savior was going to go through. But it's hard, isn't it? We're human. We're tired. The apostles were the same way. They were tired. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass away. He didn't thought that if it was possible, he wouldn't have to go through that. But he goes on, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto you. Remove this cup from me. How be it? Not what I will, but your will. It's interesting to understand that Christ believed what Amos said. Two cannot walk together unless they agree. Christ was admitting, I agree with you, Father. I agree that this has to happen to fulfill your plan. Do we agree with God? Do we agree with Christ in our daily life? Christ did. He knew what was going to happen. We know what the prayer is. 
that he prayed. He prayed three times, didn't he? He came back, he found the apostles asleep, just like we would be as human beings because they did not fully grasp what was going to occur. But they didn't have God's Spirit either, did they? Not yet. Not until the day of Pentecost. But he found them asleep. But we know what prayer it is, even though he said, take this cup from me, it's recorded for us in John. John 17 records the prayer that Christ offered to the Father. And remember, he said, I don't pray for the world. I pray for these people. I pray for those that you have given to me. That's why he was sorrowful. That's why he hurt so much. Because he was praying for even us today. Because, you know, it said in that prayer, not only for these, but for those that will believe on me through their words. These were eyewitness people who walked with him, saw the dead raised, saw the sick healed, saw the fig tree, beautiful fig tree, overnight go to a dead stump. They saw all these things, and yet, as a human being, they still went to sleep. So yes, our Savior, who prayed that prayer in John 17 for us, yes, he was sorrowful. He knew what was going to occur. We find then John 18, We find John 18, verse. John 18, verse 2. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place of Jesus often uh, resorted hither and with his disciples. And Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the priests, and the Pharisees came hither with lanterns, torches, and weapons. This word band wasn't just 10 or 15 people. All the references that I found in the scriptures and everything that was going back as far as the time of Christ, the Roman army, a band could have meant a battalion. And a battalion would run anywhere from 300 to 1,000 men. So he just didn't come out there with just a few people. They came out there with a great group of people to arrest who? Christ, Emmanuel, the one who they saw heal, who talked with them on a daily basis, they came out there to arrest him. It's interesting too. Verse 4, And therefore, knowing all things, by saying, that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Who seek you? So here, our Savior walked up to this large group of armed men and if you really think back and, and look at in society today, when you have a large group of army men, are they all going to be real nice people? 
We're here to love you and take care of you. How many times have you seen on the actual police things where they came to pick up a robber or a person they say is a criminal because they walk up and say, will you please come with us? Most likely that's not what they're going to do, is it? They're going to grab them, throw them against the car, and if they give them any resistance, they'll throw them on the ground, put their knee in their back, rip their hands behind them, and put chains on them. So here's a great big group of people. Think back to the prisoners that are being held down in Guantanamo. This is happening around midnight when this happened, when this band came in there. And so they said, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Emmanuel said to them, I am. The word he is not in the original. He said, I am. And Jesus also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell on the ground. Why would that happen? Have you ever thought about that? Why would these men, armed guards, armed men, walk backward and fall on the ground? Exodus chapter 3. We'll be back to this other. Go here to Exodus chapter 3. Verse 14. I guess where I wanted is where I wanted. That's not where I wanted to be. If I get reacted, if I get chapter three, it'd be right. Okay, verse thirteen. Moses said to God, "Remember, here's where Moses was out keeping sheep. He's out taking care of Jethro's sheep out here in the hill country. He seen a bush out there burning, but it wasn't burning up. He wanted it. He went over to it." And God said, take off your shoes, you know, you're standing on holy ground. And God told Moses, I want you to go to back to Egypt. I'm going to deliver my people, and you're going to do that. And Moses said to God, uh, and God said to Moses, because Moses said, when I go down there, who am I going to say sent me? Who sent me down to you people? He said in verse 14, And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. I want us to understand the word I am. Because Christ meant I am. And when he said to those people, I am, they knew exactly what he meant. 
They knew he meant he was the God that brought them out of Egypt. John chapter 8, verse 58. 57, then said the Jews to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Because he said, I've seen Abraham. Emmanuel said to them, Freely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He made that statement again. Those Jews knew what he said when he said, I am. And they hated him for it because he now put himself as God. But they knew exactly what he said. It wasn't done in secret. There in Matthew 19, verse 20. When he said, I am with you, is not a, a promise, it is a fact. We know that today, it is a fact that God is with us. When he said, I am with you, he meant he will be with you. And he is if we believe him, if we walk and talk with him. One more Scripture there in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. So when these soldiers came up to Christ and asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, I am. Like here in John chapter 18. When they asked him, who are you? He said, I am. In the NIV, it reads, verse 5, John 18, verse 5, they answered him, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am. And Judas, being with him, also stood with them. And now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, Who seek are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Emmanuel answered again and said, I told you that I am. Now we put he in the King James, but he was not there. If you look it up, it was an added word. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go, that the saying might be fulfilled which spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Christ knew who he was. They wanted to know who he was. He told them. They didn't believe him. But when he said, I am, they fell backward. All this occurring about 
midnight to one o'clock in the morning. This band of men who came and took him. Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22:52. Then Jesus said, or Emmanuel said to the chief priests and captains of the temple, which were come to him, "You come out as against a thief with sword and staves. When I was with you in the temple, you stretched not, uh, you stretched forth no hand against me." But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Again, Christ was telling them, I'm in charge. This is your time right now. Okay, now you can do what you want to do. But they came out to him with a, as an armed group of people. They didn't just handle him with ease, did they? No, they were very much an armed band and when he asked those things, they took him in chains and led him from that place. Around two o'clock in the morning, two or three o'clock in the morning, chapter 18 of John. John 18, verse... 19, they brought him to the high priest's office. And the high priest then asked, asked Emmanuel of his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I speak openly to the world. I taught in the synagogue, in the temple, whether the Jews always resorted. And in secret have I said nothing. Why ask you me, Ask them that heard me, what have, uh, what have, what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Then, when he spoke thus, one of the officers which stood by struck him on with the palm of his hand and saying, "Answer you, the high priest." So I see this as this guy come up and tapped him on the face. No. There was no tapping on the face. When he slapped him, he probably turned his head halfway around. I've seen the interrogation. So have you. Here he's being interrogated. There was a movie on not too long ago about the Virgin Queen of England. And I watched, they took this woman who was to be the queen. And they were just all over her so hard and biting on her like you couldn't believe. They do that today, don't they? In an interrogation. It's not just we want to know what you're doing. They come on you so hard and hear our Savior between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning was being harassed, being accused by all these different people. Time and time and time again. We slept. 
The disciples slept except for Peter and John. We know Peter was awake because he was out there. And John was known and he was let in to this illegal capture and questioning. And it wasn't easy. It's very tough. We've seen today, in society today, how they have such methods of interrogation that people sometimes just break down and admit they've done something wrong, whether they did it or not. But our Savior never did. And yet they went at Him and went at Him and came at Him, as it tells us there in Psalms 22, verse 12 and 13, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of basin, have beset around me. They grope upon me with their mouth as ravaging and roaring lions. They were so rough on him, but he never broke down. While we slept, while the church sleeps, our Savior was being really harassed to a great extent. We come now to five o'clock in the morning. So here he's been being bid on, verbally bid on, verbally accused, verbally, you know, in his face. I mean, really on him, being slapped around. And now at five o'clock, Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Emmanuel so that they would put him to death. But they did not find many. Many false test, uh, falsely testified against him. But their statements didn't agree. So they had a lot of people they brought up. They had a mob that was mob rule, wasn't it? They brought them in there. So they sought out people to testify against them. Their testimonies never agreed. Should have been turned loose. We've heard him say, some said, verse 58, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will we build another not made of hands. They didn't understand what he said when he made that because when Christ was talking about that, he was talking about his body. You destroy this body in three days. No, he talked about what was going to occur just in the very few days in front of this and how they would kill him and put him in the ground and three days he would be resurrected to life. So he knew what was going to happen. He was still in charge. Yet, even their testimonies didn't agree. Then the high priest stood before him and asked, Jesus, asked Emmanuel, Are you not going to answer? They were rough. They spit at him. Just go back and give it a lot of thought how they interrogate people. Don't you answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? 
But Emmanuel remained silent and gave no answer. How often, brethren, would we be put in a situation like that, whether it be in the church of these church members or with the world, that somebody would accuse us falsely, that we would sit there, keep our mouth closed. Now, we're human, aren't we? We don't walk the same walk that Christ walks all the time. We'd bite right back, wouldn't we? We'd try to justify our actions. But he never gave a word. As it was said, he never made a railing accusation. But we sometimes want to rail on each other, don't we? And yet, our Savior did all this and now, for five to six hours, have been beset upon by all these people. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Beloved, or the Blessed One? Notice his answer. I am, said Emmanuel. That was enough to sentence him to death. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Majesty, the Mighty One, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Again, that high priest knew what he said. It wasn't a secret saying. He said, I am. The priest knew. He said, I am God. I'm the one that created the universe. I'm the one that made humans. The high priest shows that. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witness? You have heard the blasphemy. What blasphemy? To them, when he said, I am, was blasphemy because he said, I created you. I brought you out of Egypt. I protected you for 40 years. I gave you this land. I gave you everything. Yeah, that was blasphemy because they did not know Christ. They did not know God. Would we, as people in the church of God today, if Emmanuel was to come here, would we really recognize him? Is our daily life such that we would recognize him because we walk like he walked? It'd be hard. The world wouldn't. We know the world's going to be really uptight at the church. The people that really know God, those that walk with him every day, They next took him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Came back and said, I don't find a fault with the man. Pilate took him to Herod. Brought him back again. I don't find any fault with him. But then, the mob rules, doesn't it? How often do we see mobs come out and when they get going, whether it be at a 
embassy or something else, when you get enough people together and they are stirred by someone or some group, they generally get their way. So the mob came out and they demanded the death of Emmanuel. Even though Pilate said, I find no fault in him. I don't find a fault with this man. Do you find a fault with him? But they demanded his death. So we find Mark 15, verse 15. Mark 15, 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, the mob, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Emmanuel flogged and handed over to be crucified. This flog or scourging that was done, I want to read what I took out of some of the uh, writings. Scourging. After being stripped of his clothing, Emmanuel's hands were tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire then stepped forward with a wagon in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends. The heavy whip is brought down with four, uh, full force against, again and again across Emmanuel's shoulders, back, and legs. Here's a person that we remember in John 3 said he came to this world to not condemn them, but to give them life. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subflesh producing first an oozing blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arteries bleeding from the vessels of the underlying muscles. At this point, the prisoner can only wonder when the beating will come to an end. This is happening somewhere around nine, eight, eight, uh, seven, eight in the morning, nine in the morning. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of tor, uh, torn, bleeding tissue. And when it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is halted. 
This is pretty powerful. This is the kind of love that God wants from us. Not the beating, but to be willing to accept all this type of beating for his family, for his purpose. Mark 15, verse 16 now. Then the soldiers led Emmanuel away into the place that is the Pantheon and caused together the whole company of soldiers. So here is this badly beaten body, flesh torn off his body, taken into where these soldiers are, and they put a purple robe on him, then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it upon his head. They didn't just set that up there, brethren. They crammed it down on his head until the blood came out from underneath those things. These soldiers felt that he was a criminal. He had to die. This is fair game now. Emmanuel was fair game. But he didn't falsely accuse anyone. Never did he accuse anyone. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him. Sometimes I wonder, do we mock our Savior with the things that we do, the way we live our life? Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knee, they paid homage to him. Now, they were mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, and they led him out to be crucified. This is a rough time in our Savior was doing this for you. He did this for me. They now took him to crucify him. I once saw a movie where a man was captured, tied to a chair, and they took a air-powered nail gun and drove a nail, fish nail, through his hand. Great pain was involved. And when he tried to pull that off, he was in great agony. What they did to our Savior at that point in time was not a finished nail of about a three thirty seconds or smaller. But this was probably close to a quarter inch square nail. Pretty good size. And they laid him against that upright stretched his arm out, felt for that soft spot where there is no bone, and they took this big spike and a big hammer and beat that through his hand and then into the wood. And every blow hurt. And it must have been agonizing pain. But he didn't accuse these people. He didn't 
falsely bite on them, did he? And when they had one hand nailed, they went to the other and did the same thing there. And then they fastened him, whether it was a stake or a cross member, after they had nailed his hands and his feet to this, they raised this stake, and they had a hole in the ground where these things sat. And they raised it up, and as it got to the right point, it slipped down, and bam! Can you imagine when it hit the bottom, ripping those nails on his hands and his feet? He did that for you and for me. It's pretty hard to think about that. So I ask again. The love that God had. Do you walk the walk and talk the talk? Because if you don't walk the walk and talk the talk, then are you in agreement with your Savior? He's told us a lot of things to do. Sometimes we don't do it because we have our own ideas. He hung on that stake. The blood ran down to the ground. He was went through the dark period, hanging there, dying for me. And I have to ask myself, of all that he's told us, take the Ten Commandments, where he said, you'll have no other gods before me. What do I put every day in front of God? Is there something that's more important? Television? Movies? Music, food, cars, houses. What is it? Do we build something that we can put out there and say, this represents our God? A picture or uh, something out of wood or stone. We know a lot of the world does that, don't they? Do we have our own ideas that don't agree with God, which in turn becomes taking God's name in vain, isn't it? If we have our own ideas, we take God's name in vain. If we don't follow every aspect of what he wants us to do. Do we fudge on the Sabbath? Maybe we try to self-justify. I'll go eat or I'll drive an extra mile or... I'll watch TV, maybe. Or I'll argue and fight. Is that what we do? As we look up at our Savior. Because you see, when they put him on that pole, they stripped him totally naked. All form of decency was removed hanging there for us. 
How about it, young people? Children? Young people? The fifth commandment says, honor your parents. Do you really honor your parents? Do you understand that our Savior wants you to walk with Him? And if we disrespect our parents, are we walking with Him? Do we really understand that He hung on that stake so that you could have eternal life? So He says the first commandment with promise is children to honor your parents. Do you? Do you really love your parents? If you can't love your parents, if you can't respect your parents, you will never respect God. Can't do it. How about theft? How about lying? Well, it's just a little tiny white lie. Can we say a little tiny white lie and then look at our Savior hanging on that stake? Can't do it, can you? If you keep that picture in your mind, He died so that that little white lie, which is no different than a big one, committing adultery, mentally, physically, do we do that? Do we covet things that belong to other people? Are we willing to make that a God to us? Because it does become that way. You know, the first commandment is, you have no other gods. The last commandment is coveting. And both of them mean the same thing. You put something else in front of your God. Something else hanging on that stake. And it's difficult, isn't it? It really is difficult. You have to ask yourself, how much is that blood running down his legs, his arms, off of his head, off of his back? How much am I willing to let that cover my sins? Christ made seven statements hanging on that stake. The first, well, he was hanging on there. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Think of that. He's talking about you and me, because we're just as guilty as anyone else for putting him on that stake. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're confusion of face. The church has gone every which way. So the first statement he made, hanging there, forgive them, Father. Give them an opportunity. They don't know what they're doing. We need to figure that out, don't we? We need to see what we're doing with our life. The second statement, as he hung there, said, Truly I say to you, and he was talking to the two men hanging there by him, he said, Truly 
Today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So as he's hanging on this stake today, and this day represents it, you know, not tomorrow. We, we can't have tomorrow and go out there and just be all joyous and that be the most important time of the Passover season. No, this day. This day has to be the most important time of the Passover season. Because our Savior hung up there and he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Speaking to each one of us, if we walk with him, we have an opportunity to do that. The third statement, as he hung there and he saw his disciple, his mother, and the women there, he said to the women, Behold your son. He's saying to the church, Behold your son. Now we should look as the church at our Savior, but we should look at each other. We have a responsibility to help each other. Behold your family. The church must behold its family. The first statement, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabatos Sabatanian, which is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time in his life that he was alone. As he hung there on that stake, wanting help, all these people, because there were those that loved him or were crying because he was there, but there were those that hated him. And he looked for the Father and said, Where are you? Help me. But he was by himself. And he did that because he loved you. He hung there and he gave up everything for every human being. And he wanted the Father and said, Where are you? As he kept hanging there and he came closer to his death, he cried out and said, I thirst. And we know they offered him some vinegar and wine, which he refused. But Christ thirsts for you to change, to be a part of his family. And so if we look spiritually at it, he says, I thirst for my family, for my children. Can we turn our life around? I hope so. I truly hope so. As he closer and closer to his death, he speaks out and says, It is finished. He realized that everything he had to do in following the path the Father had given him was over. He's done everything. His job was complete. It is finished. And the last statement he made, showing that he truly was still in control, 
the seventh statement he made, Father, into your hands I command my spirit. He was in charge all the way through it. He did that for you. He did that for me. Is his blood covering your sin? This day, our Savior went through an awful lot. He was hanging on that stake at this very moment of day. He wasn't asleep. He had no sleep for, what, 30 minutes? And 30 hours? Not minutes, 30 hours? But he hung there, didn't he? Is his blood covering your sin? Are you willing to make the change? have to be. If we're going to walk with Christ, as we as it said in Amos three, if you want to walk with Christ as Abraham, Jacob, Noah, Isaiah, Paul, Peter, if we're going to walk with Christ if we're going to walk with Emmanuel, if we're going to truly say, Emmanuel, God is with me, if we're really saying it and we really mean that God is with me, then we must be willing to make the change. And that's what our, our whole life is about, to be a part of that bride of Christ. Think about that today, the rest of the day. You know, I had two sermons I wanted to tell you about, and, and you might go back and look at them. There were sermons that were done at Passover season, first day and last day in Knoxville. Uh, how deep, that's not how deep was the blood, it was, I didn't write it down. But anyway, they were done in Knoxville, and Daryl talked about all that Christ went through. Covered it on the first day and the last day. And maybe afterward you can talk to Al. I'll tell him the numbers. In fact, I didn't tell Al. I did tell you, didn't I, Al? So he might have to make a few copies. It's worthwhile going back. Think about how deep was that blood that fell from Christ's body to the ground. Are you going to make a change? How great, brethren, how great is that love that God has for you.